Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined today by Sean Blanchard, who has a lot of interesting things to say about uh, the church today, especially in the light of Pope Francis's motu proprio, traditionis custodis, the debates around Vatican II, all of these things. So I'm, I'm thrilled to welcome him on. I, I had not known Sean until uh, just a few months ago when he reached out after one of my conversations with Larry Chap and said, "Hey, really enjoy the discussion. Uh, we should maybe chat about." About some stuff sometime and i said let's do it would love to have you on the podcast and he sent me some things that he's written which are really really interesting we'll, we'll dive into some of those uh but sean i'm delighted to welcome you on to creedle thanks so much zach you uh you also interviewed my good friend in baton rouge father josh johnson so that's right um, I, I i listened to that i was on a treadmill next to him listening to it oh, nice. um and uh you guys and, work out buddies I, yeah he got me back in the gym he said Great. look man this all this barbecue all this fried chicken you, you you need a gym membership. So. You got to work it off. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So yeah, on January January third or fourth, I joined him in the gym. Nice. Uh, oh, it's great. It's wonderful. I mean, you have the. It's kind of the crossroads of. It doesn't have the amazing tradition that you get in New Orleans or in sure. Lafayette. You know the kind of Creole, yep. cosmopolitan stuff in New Orleans, and then you get the Cajun in Lafayette. But it has. It's kind of the crossroads of both of those. So you can get. You can get everything in baton rouge that's great so is father josh your parish priest there uh in a sense yes he my wife and i normally go to christ the king which is the essentially the newman center for lsu got it uh the pastor there is another great younger young young now is under 40 to me yeah uh you know so father andrew uh andrew merrick who's fantastic and then his very close friend is father josh who lives there and helps out but is also vocations director Got it. Um, so he's essentially like a parochial vicar. Type, Very cool. Type deal. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, uh, let me read your bio to uh, our listeners here just so they get a sense of who you are and where you're coming from. Um, Sean Blanchard is a senior research fellow at the National Institute for Newman Studies in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a graduate of the University of North Carolina, University of Oxford, and Marquette University. Sean writes on a variety of topics in early modern and modern Catholicism. He is the author of the Synod of Pistoia and Vatican II, and I hope we can talk about the Synod of Pistoia today, Sean, because that's really interesting to me. Uh, and with Ulrich Lehner, co-edited the Catholic Enlightenment, a global anthology, which was published by CUA last year. Forthcoming works include a monograph study of the ecclesiology in the English-speaking world, an anthology of Jansen's sources, which is co-edited with Richard Yoder, and Vatican II, a very short introduction, co-authored with Stephen Bolivant. And as we just mentioned... Sean lives in Baton Rouge with his wife, Anne-Marie, and loves cats, fried chicken sandwiches, and English beer. Sean's devotion to the University of North Carolina's football team has taught him more about eschatological hope than any of his theological study. Uh, and if you're following along at home but are not really a uh, football fan, let me just say that uh, the University of North Carolina is perennially bad at football. Uh, Mediocre. I would challenge that. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, you, you had some bright spots in the Mitch Trubisky era. We did. We although did, he yeah. hasn't had many bright spots since. It's then. enough to. It's enough hope to break your heart. Is uh, is is how it works. I have this, but I I wanted to be more you know more professional and not okay, wear it during enough. the foot. We're gearing up for March Madness. I was going to say, are you ready for March Madness? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Carolina basketball right now is is good but not great and we're normally you know i was very spoiled i was at carolina from 05 to 09 or 06 yeah fall of 05 so we won senior year of high school we won the national championship senior year of college so um i lived through the true glory years so i'm 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 a little more patient with uh with the struggles we're having now that's totally fair yeah i'm an eagles fan in the nfl uh, and we're perpetually sort of on the bubble. And obviously a few years ago I won the Super Bowl. And I still yeah, feel that like, was awesome. I feel like as a, as a sports fan, I, I can now die happy because my favorite sports team finally that a, won. That was a wonderful game. And you had Mac Hollins on your team for a while. I he's know, UNC, that's right, UNC from UNC. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, I was bummed when we let him go. I actually have always he's been a, a Mac Hollins fan. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's pretty cool. Very interesting guy, too. He uh, yeah, has like, this like, reptile hobby, loves keeping snakes <laughs> and stuff. He's very, kind of strange, a, but, you know. He was a walk-on. He was mailing... Yeah. VHS tapes of his highlights to coaches. I didn't know that part um, about VHS. Tapes. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a he's a phenomenal he's success a story. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. Well, Sean, thanks for coming on. I'm very excited to talk to you. I'm, I was really glad when you reached out, uh, and when you reached when when we had some following discussions, you mentioned you had this essay forthcoming about Vatican II, and uh, it looks like it's out now in common wheel. It is called "The Reform Was Real: Continuity and Change at Vatican II." I will put this in the show notes for anyone who wants to read and follow along. 
But Sean, let's use this as a launching point for, for our discussion sure. today. You can obviously talk about anything else you've written, and I do want to talk about the Synod of Pistoia. But as, as maybe a sort of starting point for what you're talking about here, uh, you, you are saying that there was, there was real discontinuity at Vatican II. Uh, not that it was all discontinuity, not that there was rupture, if we can sort of contrast that with the hermeneutic of rupture. Mm-hmm. But you're saying there, there was discontinuity, and we need to sort of call this discontinuity for what it is and recognize that discontinuity is sometimes an important part of the development of doctrine. And uh, as one of the sort of chief champions of your case, you cite Benedict XVI, who as Pope and as, uh, as Cardinal Ratzinger before he was Pope, talked about this very, this very type of discontinuity that you are saying Vatican II constituted. So let's talk about that maybe as a first question. Um, what would you say is the difference between the hermeneutic of reform and the hermeneutic of rupture? And how should we understand that hermeneutic of reform possibly including this discontinuity that we were talking about? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, and I'm gonna, I'm going to answer it um, very briefly, and then we can extrapolate on it in in, in kind of in, in whatever direction. But I mean, very briefly, I would say a, a hermeneutic of rupture would be a theologically irresponsible way to explain change, either in church history or or church teaching. And obviously, the focal point of the reason these phrases were coined was specifically Vatican II, mm-hmm. but I think they have broader applicability. Um, a hermeneutic of reform, and this might seem like question begging, right? Because reform is a good word, rupture is a bad word, but a hermeneutic of reform is a, uh, a responsible way to explain change um, in church history or church teaching. So hermeneutics of rupture, and I know we're going to get into this later, they could be on kind of either end of the spectrum, um, if you will, um, a more traditionalist rupture or a more progressive rupture. Um, and I think that's the origin of the, con- of the concern that, uh, that Pope Benedict, or we should mm-hmm. maybe call him Ratzinger because we're talking about his, his, his longer career, but Ratzinger was concerned with both, uh, both of those possibilities. Yeah, that makes sense. So when we say hermeneutic rupture, when people say, uh, or it's, it's probably less claimed by people who embrace this, that they are embracing a hermeneutic rupture, I think more likely it's an accusation that you're embracing a hermeneutic rupture. So when someone casts that, right. that sling stone at someone, what are they actually claiming? What does hermeneutic rupture mean? I, th- I think if it's, if, I mean, you, it, it would never be used positively, as you say, right? Um, s- someone might say, you know, I believe in reform or I believe in, in healthy change or something. People aren't going to say rupture. Perhaps maybe some progressives would say Vatican II was revolutionary. And by that, yeah. they would mean something that, that, that Ratzinger would, would, would categorize as rupture. Um, but I, I think the, 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 the theological problem would be a break. I mean, Ratzinger's phrase was, uh, what is it? The one, let me hear, I, I had it, I had it pulled up. He uses a phrase, the one subject church. Yeah. So he says, um, a hermeneutic of renewal in con- in the continuity of the one subject church which the Lord has given to us. So this is what he's trying to guard against is uh, maybe to use um, the language of today, uh, uh, the, a, a great reset. Uh, <laughs> what he's trying to say, Vatican II was not um, a great reset. It doesn't throw out everything that happened before it. Um, either from whether you come from a traditionalist perspective and you're lamenting this, what, what a horrible thing that, you know, Vatican II destroyed our faith, um, or from a progressive perspective, what a wonderful thing. We can leave all that stuff in the trash and we can move on to, to this, you know, um, this, this new reality, uh, that, that we're living in. So he's really trying to, from his perspective, he's, he's walking a narrow road, uh, in between two, uh, possibilities, which break. Uh, a sense of a, of a kind of continual journey. And I think, I mean, Vatican II's ecclesiology with this idea of the pilgrim church journeying through history, that's a very much a, a, a continuous image. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a subject that can change in positive ways and can reform and renew, but it is a continuous march, if you will, mm-hmm. a continuous journey. So that's, that's what I think John Paul II and, and Ratzinger were on the same page, um, even though they very much embraced um, many things that would be identified with the spirit of Vatican II in all kinds of areas. 
um, they were they were very concerned with with saying this is the same church that that we had at Pentecost and that we had at the Council of Chalcedon and through the ages. And that right. was a, a, a preoccupation. So the, I often hear the hermeneutic of, of rupture contrasted with the hermeneutic of continuity. Um, what you're advocating in your article is that the hermeneutic of reform is not strictly speaking a hermeneutic of continuity. Yes, it is certainly, as you just mentioned, emphasizing that this is the same church that we had at Pentecost and Chalcedon and Nicaea, et cetera. Uh, but it, but a hermeneutic of reform, reform definitionally, I think, includes elements of both um, continuity because it is the same thing reformed, but also uh, discontinuity because it is indeed reformed. There's there's something changed in it. So the hermeneutic of reform, then, if, if I understand you correctly, differs from the hermeneutic of continuity because reform is not strict continuity. There are obviously changes between what is formed and what is reformed. So a hermeneutic of reform it contains elements of continuity and discontinuity simultaneously. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So I think I think we saw a change in the way that Ratzinger spoke about this. In in 1985, he, he talks about a hermeneutic of discontinuity and rupture, and then he talks about a hermeneutic of continuity. So he does use the phrase hermeneutic of continuity in 1985. I think he realized in 2005 that he had been misunderstood. Um, and I think he realized that there were people who were who were taking him to mean um, the proper interpretation of Vatican II involves no real change other than maybe a new pastoral strategy, right. um, new new rhetoric, um, maybe some obvious obviously disciplinary change. Everyone would accept accept that there was disciplinary change, whether they uh, celebrate or or bemoan that. Um, or or a mixture of the two, as as I as I, as I think I would do. Um, I I need more than anyone. I need meatless Fridays. You know, I need some form of a regular penitential right, right. Uh, discipline because <laughs> yeah. I'm much better. I'm a convert too, like you, and I'm much better at uh, at, at feasting than than fasting. Um, so uh, uh, they're they're you know perhaps a mixed bag. But anyway, I'm I'm getting off I'm I'm getting off track. Um, everyone would accept there was some level of change. But I think Ratzinger realized that he'd been misunderstood with the hermeneutic of continuity, that there could be no, uh, that, that teaching as such had not changed in any way. Right. Um, and I think he, he, there's a couple things going on in this 2005 address. There's a great article by a French Canadian theologian um, named Gilles Routier, like, like Giles, Gilles Routier, um, and he and he sees this address as basically aimed at SSPX, as basically trying okay. to justify. Yes, there was change in the teaching on religious liberty, which right. SSPX has always insisted. Rejected. You know, yep. this is this is change, and we and we can't accept it um, yep. for that reason. So Ratzinger's uh, Pope Benedict is trying to say um, he's not trying to gaslight them and say no, 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 there's no change. You know, don't don't mind the the man behind the curtain. He's he's being very honest, there is real change here, and mm -hmm. it's justifiable for these reasons. Um, so I think that's that's one of the uh, um, the goals, the kind of undercurrent. He doesn't come out and say, "Hey, this is aimed at SSPX," but I think he's trying to say, um, by continuity, I'm trying to give a theologic. But when I said hermeneutic of continuity, I never meant that to exclude reform, right. and reform can include continuity and discontinuity, but he does say at different levels. Right. So he still is, is, is very much guarding against what he would see as this progressivist uh, rupture hermeneutic as well. Now, when he says at different levels, is, is he saying that uh, there can be, there can only be continuity on the level of dogma, for example, but there can be discontinuity on the level of, on the lower level of doctrine? Yes, I mean, I think the only qualification I would put to saying continuity in dogma would would simply be that that dogma can develop and 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 there can be clarity, but there cannot be reversal. Yes, um, I, I think I think that would be insisted. I mean, I think all mainstream Catholic theologians, certainly the popes, would insist uh, dogma as such could never be reversed because we believe dogma with divine and Catholic faith. Um, uh, and that's, you know, integral to our salvation. So, so when, when Ratzinger cites John the 23rd and Paul the sixth and, and these, his, his, his predecessors on that question, he, he is very much saying Vatican II does not, um, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd even want to say it doesn't alter dogma because again, 
an alteration could be clarity, right? Right, right. So there's nothing wrong with that. I think essentially everyone would accept that that's possible, but it doesn't um, drop or reverse dogma, mm-hmm. but it could drop or reverse uh, a, a non-definitive doctrine and even one that has been held for a very long time. And that, I think that is the the middle ground that is very controversial right now in the kind of wider Catholic conversation. So Eve Congar, for example, says true reform um, does not touch dogma, but it has to extend beyond discipline, uh, better regulate, you know, uh, canonical right. enforcement. But that middle ground, that's where the debate is. And that's the really, really hard part. Um, so, so, you know, stuff like Pope Francis with the death penalty, you know, the debate, the, the, the critics of Pope Francis would say, well, this is, this is definitive doctrine. This can't be altered. Yeah. The supporters would say, whatever he's doing, it's touching non-definitive doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Same, sure. same thing for religious liberty, Amoris Laetitia, all these controversial uh, moves. So as an example, um, Pius IX dogmatically defined the, uh, the assumption I'm sorry, sorry, the uh, the Immaculate Conception, right? Uh, The Immaculate Conception is now the level of definitive dogma. It cannot be reversed. There could be be future clarifications about the Immaculate Conception, perhaps. Um, Possibly, you know, with respect to our Eastern Brethren and some of the different understandings of original sin, perhaps. I don't know. I'm just, I'm I'm speculating at this point. But there there could be be clarifications in the future. Um, That's a great example. The theological understanding of what those things mean could be debated and clarified. Yeah. Right. But there could not be a future council that overturns that or reverses the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. But another example uh, that could be maybe, maybe or was perhaps, I think in the Syllabus of Errors, which is also Pius IX, and correct me if any of my, my history is wrong here, I think he, he, uh, did, he pointed out that there is no sort of right to religious freedom. Um, right, that's right. And and Benedict, <laughs> you said no, there is right. So that yeah. would be the example of the discontinuity on a different level that Benedict's talking about. That the Society of Saint Pius X takes major issue with. That even today, Bishop Athanasius Schneider takes major issue with, etc. Right. Yep. And Benedict the Sixteenth is saying, no, this is this is a a legitimate development of doctrine, and it can be changed in this way because this is that's not right. dogmatically defined. That's right. And he would also so where. That's a great example, and the distinction is really important. And this distinction gets, I think, gets lost on a lot of people, and they think that if you talk about doctrinal change, you're just saying, "Well, everything's up for grabs." And tomorrow we might say that the, you know, the Trinity is a quaternity, or you know, <laughs> something right, like right. this. Yeah, yeah. And and th- this is not at all what uh, after Vatican II, um, there were a number of debates amongst the uh, the council fathers of the of the quote unquote majority. So you have. Yves Congar, Joseph Ratzinger, Hans Kuhn, Henri de Lubach. They have very intense debates, but none of them are debating can non-definitive doctrine change. It had right. changed. They all accepted right. that it had. The question was, um, how do we move forward? What What is a healthy amount of change? How do we justify this change? Um, what else is, uh, is debatable or not debatable? And I think for Ratzinger a, as an individual... There was a sense that there's a um, there's an airing of ideas and grievances at an ecumenical council that is inappropriate after an ecumenical council. Right. So his tone changes. There's a number of reasons that his tone changed, but one reason is we just did that, guys. We 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 put a lot on the table. There's a lot going on, and we need to kind of consolidate at this point. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, conversation partners that 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 did not. Did not agree with that, but but what you're saying about the syllabus, I think every, every every mainstream Catholic theologian after the council would have accepted there are 18th and 19th century teachings in encyclicals or in papal allocutions or what have you yeah. that are have been superseded. Yeah, um, and it was only later when there was a, a battle between broadly speaking conservative and liberal interpretations of the council that you you get a rise of a, of a conservative hermeneutic of continuity which tries to sort of i i think kind of historically whitewash all of that yeah and i don't think ratzinger ever intended to do that and i think he clarifies that in in 2005 that makes sense i'm going to read a paragraph excerpt from your article here sean that we can talk about it a little bit because i think this helps to maybe take a step back and just look at the um, look at the camps as perhaps benedict did as you suggest 
Um, and then we can sort of talk about the the problems with each and, and then maybe why the hermeneutic reform is the best way to bridge these bridge these gaps between the various parties. This is, I don't know, 10 paragraphs or so into your article, I think. By the 1980s, Ratzinger was known to hold that there were basically three positions on Vatican II. Two of them were erroneous and theologically dangerous, even potentially schismatic. Only one was orthodox. First, Ratzinger impugned a traditionalist hermeneutic that he associated primarily with Archbishop Marcel. And I never, I never remember how to pronounce this guy's name. Is it Le, Lefebvre? Lefebvre. 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 Okay. Archbishop Marcel. Lefebvre. I pronounce. I, I mispronounced it horribly uh, when I first was reading about this when I was at Oxford, actually, in front of a French person, and they were laughing hysterically. <laughs> I said, I said uh, Lefebvre or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. I think um, I normally say like Lefe- no, Lefebvre, Lefebvre yeah. or something like that. Right, well, some, some say Lefebvre, but I'm pretty sure it's Lefebvre. Okay. Yeah. Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the Society of St. Pius X. That's the SSPX that you were talking about. Second was a far more popular progressive hermeneutic that saw Vatican II not as reform, but as revolution, a totally new beginning. And then you have this parenthetical here that I totally resonate with. Some vapid post-conciliar <laughs> gather hymns I suffer through as a young man sum up this paradigm, e.g. sing a new church into being. I've sung that, uh, or I've been in a church that has sung that, you know, in the past like two years. So this is not... Uh, you know, this is. Not, I can't. I can't, the, the I can't even here. sing that stuff. I feel like I'm in a. Um, I feel like I'm in like a Care Bear world or something. Yeah. Like, and I'm yeah. not. I'm not a liturgical. I'm not really a traditionalist at all. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to have normal, you know, English masses yeah. at the new yeah. missile. But some of the song, it's the songs that I can't. Yeah, it's rough. It's I really can't rough. handle. Uh, and then you say both of these two paradigms were hermeneutics of discontinuity unorthodox because they posited a break or rupture in the church's continuous spirit-led journey through history. And you're getting at something here that I've thought a lot about, you know, with respect to the sort of Taylor Marshalls of the world. Um, And that's that it is dangerous, I think, to posit that Vatican II really did, uh, really did embrace a a spirit of what we might call total discontinuity. Because if you do that, you're essentially agreeing uh, in substance, although not direction, with those who say no, this is this is about a revolution. You're right, right? because those two camps are saying this is just, there's just, there's nothing but discontinuity at Vatican II. One is saying that's why we have to reject Vatican II, and the other is saying that's why Vatican II ushers in this revolution in the Church and why right. we should sing a new Church into being, etc. Right. And so, that, so there's a real danger there, uh, and obviously um, that needs to be contrasted with this hermeneutic reform that recognizes no, there's there's continuity and there's discontinuity. Um, and you need both in reform, and I think that is the crucial, that's the crucial uh, insight from Benedict, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think so. Yeah. Is, I mean, Benedict was uh, instinct, his instincts were very conservative, but he was also, I should say is, I mean, he's, he's, he's remarkably still alive and uh, 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 seems to be um, lucid. Um, his, 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 his whole concern was, um, we have to actually be honest about the change that is here. We have to be honest about, we, I mean, I think he saw this as a theological imperative. I mean, if we're uniting faith and reason, if Jesus Christ is the truth, sometimes that's really uncomfortable. And sometimes we have to look honestly at the mistakes that we've made in the past, the ways that we've formulated our ideas in, uh, that are either um, not ideal or even perhaps wrong in certain circumstances. So I think he saw this as a, as a, as a theological and a historical, uh, question. And how, um, I mean, how, how do we, how do we sort of evaluate what is up for debate and what is not right? I mean, the, uh, as we just mentioned, the things that are dogmatically defined are not, but, um, I think you'll even find debates over what has been dogmatically defined. Um, yeah. Right. You know, and I think there there are, for example, there are some things that councils say that are dogmatically defined, and there are other things, other things that you'll find in councils that, you know, maybe they're not in, they're not in canons, for example, and so you can't really make the argument that they're, or, or there are there are there are holes in the argument that it's dogmatically defined. I mean, one example of this again, um, there are there are some in the sort of uh, hardcore traditionalist circles in America who say that Vatican II defines nothing dogmatically because there are no canons. Uh, and so, right. since that's the case, you actually don't have to accept that because none of it is none of it is in the um, category of dogma, etc. So, there are even debates on what is dogmatically defined. Uh, I yes. think, um, yep. and that obviously makes it difficult to understand what can be 
decided. Maybe this is the sort of difficult gray area of debate that you were just talking about. But how right. how do we have any confidence that the things that we hold are are going to be fixed and cannot be changed in the future? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. And obviously, my my opinion is is just is just my opinion. Um, you're you're correct that there is no agreed upon um, list of infallible statements. And one reason for that is that the you know the, the the definition of papal infallibility itself comes in 1870. So you have this kind of irony of you have a tension between pope and council uh, from at least the late Middle Ages that is an explosive tension at the Council of Constance and is there at Trent as well. Um, you then have a definition of papal infallibility in 1870 that uses a particular formula that most people can get on board with even people mm-hmm. that had reservations about deny about defining the the dogma of papal infallibility the Gallican like, bishops like Newman I think for example exactly right right, yeah. right so Newman was fine with the notion that um, the Pope could teach infallibly but he thought there were various reasons why defining this was what what was a problem or or imprudent um, at the very least so one of the problems is is how do you apply um, a formula that's agreed upon in 1870 back to whatever um, Boniface the Eighth in 1302 or Pope Leo in 451 or something like that. So my read of of Vatican One is that um, the real impact of the Council is in the definition of the Pope's uh, jurisdictional supremacy. So the Pope can appoint all bishops. The Pope has immediate authority over bishops that can't be blocked by um, kings or parliaments or national yep. bishops' conferences or, or, or whatever it might be. So that's the real, um, very concrete, undeniable takeaway from Vatican I. Papal infallibility um, works. This is the kind of irony of it to me. It's meant to resolve... Um, Many of the advocates for papal infallibility wanted it to be this immediate um, ability of the Pope to resolve a dispute. Mm-hmm. Dispute comes up, Pope says X, everyone gets in line. And there's many, many reasons why in 1870 lots of Catholic bishops thought that that, that was a good idea and the correct reading of the tradition and things like that. But that doesn't actually in practice happen. If you look at the the, the two dogmatic definitions that everyone agrees were indeed dogmatic definitions, the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, um, are the result of essentially unanimous consent by everyone. I mean, very, very few people in 1854 would have denied the Immaculate Conception. There were some. They were descendants of Jansenists called the Macolisti. Um, So there were small groups of folks uh, who, who denied it, but I mean, less than 1%. Yeah. of Catholics. And I think same thing with the assumption. Anyone who had a problem with the assumption had a problem with it because they thought it might be ecumenically insensitive or unnecessary. Right. Nobody... Not because it was untrue. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, I think the the piety towards it, and this is one of Newman, you know, Newman's insights about this are really beautiful. Uh, you have a liturgical tradition, you have the faith of the laity, you have the preaching of bishops, and then this all kind of flowers up into 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 dogma. So all that to say... Papal infallibility um, hasn't, in, in my reading, historically, has not been successfully exercised apart from consensus. That doesn't right. mean that it couldn't be. I mean, the definition itself says that it can be, and that was very controversial, apart from the consent of the church. But I think the reading of dogma that that is the healthiest and historically and theologically the most defensible is around a kind of consensus. That doesn't mean the church can't teach authoritatively about something that's controversial or that there are, are you know, dissenting opinions on, but the real monuments of tradition, the real landmarks of tradition are, um, are if not unanimous, enjoy widespread consensus at every level. That's, that's, that's my personal uh, opinion. Yeah. But to, to focus on your, your, your question of, you know, how do, we, how, how do we know, I think it's difficult. Uh, you, you and I could get out a pen and paper and we could write a list of things, and it might be really close. You know, I might write down 40 things and you might write down 45. 
Um, we're probably right about most of those, but we're probably not going to be sure about whatever's controversial except in historical hindsight. Yeah. So in the 1950s, when John Courtney Murray was challenging uh, the official teaching on religious liberty, there were people who thought he was challenging definitive doctrine, and there were people who thought he was challenging I mean, it was clearly doctrine. It was clearly teaching. Yep, yep. There are people who thought, well, this is ultimately reformable because it has to do with contingent historical things, church-state relations, yeah. forms of government. And they thought it should be an open question. Eventually, Murray is vindicated, at least to some extent. There's differing readings of Dignitatis Humanae around, is it more of a, a French model or, or the, the American model? Uh, be that as it may, in hindsight, it's clearly non-definitive. The... Yeah. Um, you know, by right, because definitive means final and unalterable. I'm or not is it sure. Definitive now, I mean, was it was it was it non-definitive then and definitive now because now it's been now has been codified in the council. I think there are. I I I would hesitate, even though as as an American, you know, raised on um, you know Fourth of July and and uh, yeah, that's and, right, and Freedom. founding fathers. <laughs> and all that. I mean, I you know, it's hard for me to imagine. Um, societies that don't have uh the kinds of public spaces i'm used to having yeah um and the kinds of civil liberties that i'm i'm used to enjoying but i think from the perspective of the catholic faith i think what's uh what i would say is definitive about something like dignitatis humanae is, is insights into um human dignity and insights into um the right of the human being not to be coerced yeah. Uh, religiously, I would yeah. I would hesitate as much as I would like to as a as a good flag waving flag waving American. Um, I would like to impose my my political uh, proclivities uh, as as the the most Catholic, but fair, I don't yeah. think that's fair. And I think that in the year twenty five hundred or three thousand A D, there could be a very very different understanding of church and state and yeah. the civil order and and so yeah. so th there's always going to be non definitive elements to these, these documents and these, these teachings. That's fair. So how, how, how best do you think, I mean, just to take religious freedom, for example, and you, you talk about exactly how sort of Pope Benedict made an appeal to SSPX about why this was a real change, but it was a, a necessary and true change. Um, you know, to take that as an example, how, how do you think is the, what do you think is the best way to explain this change to people today, even who say, uh, like I'm already mentioned Bishop Schneider, uh, I've read his um, Christus Vincit, uh, his book-length interview with um, right. Diane, Catholic reporter, I forget her, Montagna maybe. Yeah, um, Montagna, I believe. Yeah. It's really good. I like a lot of what he says. I mean, some of his, just, some of his memoirs, his spiritual memoirs, is beautiful, and his story of growing up in the faith mm -hmm. with his uh, parents and his, his love for Jesus is palpable. Um, but he does reject under this, Under, um, under persecution of some form, yeah, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, he, under um, the, Soviet, under the he, Soviet Union, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so they, they, I think his, he and his family had to go on a train like four hours um, every Sunday to get just to get to a mass that they could they could attend. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just a really a really inspiring story of growing up under Soviet repression. Uh, and uh, he clearly loves Jesus very dearly, but he rejects this. Um, he rejects this, this notion of religious freedom. And he says that the, there is no um, there is no uh, right to wrong, basically. Um, mm hmm. And, uh, I mean, how, you know, how do, how do we engage with people like Bishop Schneider um, and, and try to articulate that this is, this is uh, discontinuity, but the discontinuity per se right. is not a problem, um, you know, because we're, it's not reversing a, a previously established dogma. And it, this obviously has really important implications for how we reach out to the, uh, the so-called rad trads in our midst, um, mm -hmm. most of whom I, I think love Jesus dearly and who I, I really want mm -hmm. to be... Uh, fully immersed in the church and not sort of put out at the margins. I mean, one of my one of my main concerns right. with traditionalist custodis is that it does exactly that. It takes these people who are mm. really trying to be faithful to Christ in His church. Um, maybe they need maybe they need some help in sort of understanding what that fidelity looks like. But instead, it right. just casts them out, uh, makes them feel like they're persecuted within their own church, um, and then it's harder for them to it's harder for all of us to benefit from the fruits that they can they can offer and the gifts that they have. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that's a that's a really hard thing, uh, especially when it, when they see it not happening. And I've talked about this with Larry, which you you might have heard. They see it not happening to those who are uh, you know doing what um, what Larry calls like the the clown masses. You know, right. <laughs> um, those people aren't marginalized and put yeah. on the uh, put on the yeah. periphery. It's the people who are trying to trying to attend the the mass of the ages, as they call it, the, right, the traditional right, Latin right. mass, and and be as faithful as they possibly can. Um, so yeah, so how I mean, how do we uh, how do we best sort of go forward from here? Yeah. Um, and find common ground. Yeah. Um, well, let me just sit briefly on this notion of the of, of the clown masses. I I was in some shocking masses the first couple of years after I became Catholic in 2006. Yeah. And I do think quite a lot of that has been has been um, stamped out as a violent image, but I do think it's been, yeah. and that's just partly because of uh, changing uh, proclivities of priests. And I do yeah. think many, many bishops have made clear that this stuff is is not appropriate. And I think uh, most lay people don't actually want this. So right. I do think we've come a really long way. I talked with Larry about that. I, I, I watched your interview with Larry, uh, which is why I emailed you, because I thought it was I thought it was great. And Larry and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. I do think we're headed in a in a in a positive direction um, liturgically. I think most people want um, maybe we're in different contexts. I mean, I've lived in. North Carolina, Wisconsin, Louisiana, most of what I find is, is really good. Occasionally there's something nutty, but usually really good. Um, yeah. Spent time in Australia, England, Ireland. Um, I think we're headed in in the right direction, but as you say, there, there are problems and it's not fair to target only the people that are quote unquote to the right of us and, uh, and give a free pass to, to problems that, that we see quote unquote to the left of us. I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, another thing I would say regarding persecution or the perceived persecution, um, studying Jansenism has really made me, there's, there was a, a, a moment where I think there was a possible reintegration of so-called Jansenism of these people that tended to a more extreme Augustinianism. And it was in the 1780s and 90s, and it was called the Peace of the Church. It really started in the 17, excuse me, the 1670s. 1680s, 1690s. I think there was a, a window of opportunity and polemic and tension ramped back up. And then the Pope issues a um, an encyclical, is what we would call it now, called Unigenitus. And this was, I say in, a, in an essay, it, it pours kerosene on a smoldering fire. And, it, and I think it made things much, much worse. I think Unigenitus should not have been promulgated, at least not in the form in which it was. Mm-hmm. And it created a... Um, it, it created a, a persecuted church within a church, which had rep- redounded decades and decades and decades and, and even contributed in some ways to the French Revolution. So I do think that Rome needs to be very, very careful with how they handle these folks. Very, very careful, not only for the spiritual good of everyone, including yeah. the traditionalists, but also for very uh, practical, self-serving reasons. Rome needs to be very, very careful. Um, regarding how, how to dialogue with someone like Schneider, um, I think the most important thing is that, that understanding the, the historical context of these teachings, I think that when teaching is presented as all basically the same, um, you know, uh, the Tome of Leo and the Nicene Creed and all that is teaching, right? It's in the pages of Denzinger, but it's utterly fundamental to who we are as Catholics. Um, there's also stuff in Denzinger, which is, um, holy office responses to queries from Leuven university on highly technical disputed point, yeah. you know, about dueling or about, um, right, right, yeah. you know, taking interest at various times of history, you know, right. so there's, there's, because of the post-conciliar tension and the ambiguity that a lot of people have felt, there's been a tendency to view doctrine the way that fundamentalist Protestants view scripture. Right. Catholics instinctively have a sense that's because of the way we're catechized, I think because of the liturgy, we instinctively have a sense that, you know, the Gospels are central, and if something seems to contradict the Gospel, you read that through the Gospel and not the other way around. Right. Okay, so Catholics are not going to say, oh, no, actually, it's okay to annihilate your enemies, because look, in Joshua chapter 7, they do, no, they, it, we, 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 right? Yeah. We have, we have a, um, a, a, 
even Catholics who've never studied scripture at a deep level, they, ins- they have instincts about how to interpret it. And I think that that needs to be the case with doctrine as well. Mm-hmm. And I think with religious liberty in particular, the way that Pope Benedict justifies it, I think is, is really beautiful as he says, well, there's a continuity here with the early church and with Christ, which in some ways um, was obscured over the centuries. Um, so you can claim a, a, a kind of, he, he, he talks about the claiming a, a deeper continuity. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the Dignitatis Humanae, whatever issues it has and whatever ways it, it, it will be reinterpreted throughout the centuries, it, it's trying to go back to um, a deeply Christological understanding of uh, the dignity of the person, the freedom of the person to accept or reject the message of the gospel, um, freedom as, 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 as a constituent part of love and discipleship. Um, and I think that people like uh, Archbishop Schneider or Bishop Bishop Schneider um, need to read the 18th and 19th century teachings um, through the broader tradition. So being it might sound glib, but we need to be more traditional, not less traditional. Mm-hmm. We need to take into account the, the entire tradition. Um, again, easier said than done. People are really dug in to their tribes and their, their, um, their context. And I think the debate over religious liberty is often not really about that. It's really about the question of, well, what else can change? Um, or do we have to now accept Vatican II as a good thing instead of a bad thing? I think that's the, the tail wagging the dog for a lot of people is they want to say, look, Vatican II is a failure. It was, it, it, it was, it was bad. Is there some way we can sort of, you know, most people don't go as far as like Vigano says, can we like, you know, uh, he says, he actually says, cites the Senate of Pistoia. He says, uh, he says, really? can we just wow. like, you know, condemn, yeah, can we just sort of like yeah. blot this out the way we did with the Senate of Pistoia, which is kind of silly because that's a diocesan Senate, uh, not yeah. an ecumenical council. But um, I think that's the deeper debate. The Dignitatis Humanae became kind of a satellite war, a focal point mm-hmm. for what do you think about Vatican II overall? Right. And right. as conservative as Ratzinger was at times in his post-conciliar implementation or understanding, he was doggedly um, uh, supportive of Vatican II as at least the texts of Vatican II. Um, and I think that's where we've seen in the last couple of years certain conservative forces that were broadly in favor of Ratzinger's pontificate and, and broadly supportive of him I think are, are drifting away from that position now because they go, yeah. oh, well, look at Pope Francis. He's the, uh, the result of all this, uh, the, you know, beating the drum of Vatican II. Uh, it was inevitable we would get a Francis, and, and now we have to sort yeah. of reverse all of this. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think that is exactly the situation in which we find ourselves now. And I, I think um, I really value your work, Sean, because I think it, it does, uh, it offers a sort of a way of understanding these these elements of discontinuity, which are really hard to deny. I mean, I think many people who are in the, and I, I don't mean this pejoratively, I just mean this as sort of a convenient label, but the rad trad faction, right? Um, uh, many people who are there have, have gotten to this point where maybe they came into the church, and, and I'm not talking exclusively about Taylor Marshall, but maybe he's a good example. He was an Anglican priest uh, in the Episcopal Church in America. The Episcopal Church, and I know this because I was in the Episcopal Church in America, just went off the, off the rails, just 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 a, a complete mess in the early 2000s. Um, and so there was uh, an exodus of both clergy and lay people from the Episcopal Church uh, into other denominations. And I think that those would generally go one of three ways. They'd either sort of leave the church entirely because they'd be disillusioned with it, or they would go into a more serious reformed stream, you know, something like the PCA, for example, or they would become Catholic. And obviously, you know, Taylor Marshall and I, we became Catholic. So we're in that sort of, in that stream exiting uh, Anglicanism. And um, Anglicans have a really high view of church authority and ecclesiology. They have an ecclesiology that is is not, is not Catholic, of course, but it's uh, it's more Catholic, more, more, I should say, more sort of historical than, for example, Presbyterian ecclesiology. Um it, uh, it emphasizes the episcopacy, for example. It has a pretty high view of the sacraments, although it differs on what the sacraments are, et cetera. But it does value authority, and there there is even sort of an authority structure in the in the Anglican Church. There's um, uh, there are you know something like synods or mm-hmm. global conferences. 
there's not really the same understanding of infallible dogma unless you're talking about the the early seven ecumenical councils. Um, mm-hmm. But authority is still valued and appreciated. But especially for these Anglicans who were fleeing, authority was really important because the Episcopal Church, was, as it was going off the rails, was just proclaiming all of these things to be true that were just completely antithetical to the gospel and to the received tradition as it had been universally understood for over two th- for almost 2,000 years. Um, so it was a huge problem, and I think those Anglicans who were coming in really wanted to see Rome as a bedrock of authority that right. would never change. And, right. uh, and we were talking about this a little bit before we hit the record button, too, is, you know, when you become Catholic as you're catechized in RCAA or whatever it is, you're kind of taught that. You read, like, the Catholic yeah. Answers tracts, and it's very simple. It's like, right. um, you know, the, the nice thing about the Catholic Church is that it, it never changes. There's that—I uh, think you even mentioned this article, right? The meme? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where there's, like, the, 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 the skeleton meme, and it's, like, yeah. still waiting for the Catholic yeah. Church to change. And, and I remember being like, yeah, there. when I saw yeah. that. And yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, you're like, oh, we this is exactly change. what I need. Like, yeah. I need an unchanging church. Um, and now there is an element of truth there. Like, in, in one level, the church is indefectible, and on mm-hmm. one level, the church never changes. On another level, as, as Benedict points out, and it is another level, um, the church changes. It has to change. It changes all the time. It changes because it's made up of defectible people. It's an indefectible institution made up of defectible people. But my broader point here, sorry for the monologue. No, my no, no. Point it's, is that it's great, man. You're articulating it, it, a lot of what I wanted to say, so I appreciate uh, it. Well, a lot of people like myself, like Taylor Marshall, we come into the Catholic Church and we think, this is great. I never have to worry about you know, being sort of slippery on doctrine anymore because the Catholic Church will never change. And then what happens is we start studying history and we realize, oh, it has changed. Mm-hmm. Like there, there have been moments, for example, like Vatican II, that, that contradicted previous papal pronouncements, uh, like Pius IX's um, Syllabus of Errors. What do we do with that? I thought this was the Church that was never going to change. And I think, um, you know, I think your work is really helpful for this because it helps us understand, oh, this is why it changed. This is why change, because, you know, and you mentioned this in the end of your article, too, we haven't really covered it yet, but we, we need to have this approach that does recognize that the Church is simultaneously indefectible and defectible, that it has two aspects. It's both divine and human. Mm-hmm. In her divinity, the Church never changes. She's, she's perfect and indefectible. In her humanity, the Church has to change because she is led uh, and, and made up by sinful people. And so, in that sense, the people in her can make errors. Now, they're, the, the, the sort of more sophisticated understanding recognizes the two levels of the Church, that there are levels of her teaching that are dogmatically defined that reflect her indefectibility uh, in essence, and so they cannot be changed. On another level, as these doctrines develop and sometimes and sometimes not become dogma, those doctrines develop over time and can indeed be changed over time, and that's what we have to recognize. So I think that the hard work is recognizing, as you've, as you've already pointed out, where, where those dividing lines are, what, what can and cannot be reversed, but we have to recognize, just prudentially, we have to recognize that there is true reversal um, of doctrine sometimes. The true reversal is rare, but there's, there's very frequently alteration and, and uh, mm-hmm. almost always development. And we mm-hmm. have to recognize that. Because if we don't, then we're going to end up in the, in the place where as soon as we find a, an example of reversal, it, uh, it sort of crumbles away our entire epistemological, ecclesiological yeah, foundation. That's right. And then we're stuck sort of drifting more or less and we're in a big, a big problem there. That's right. That's absolutely, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think I, I know less about the Episcopal Anglican context, obviously, than you do. Um, I may have some wonderful friends from that tradition, but I've also seen some pretty wild stuff from, uh, uh, I was looking into the Episcopal Church when I was on my journey to Catholicism and I yeah, somehow I ended up on a, um, an email thing you know email forwards of john shelby spong and 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 uh and 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 someone said oh he went to unc chapel hill and i thought wow yeah like yeah and then i read it and he i mean he doesn't believe in the resurrection jesus yeah (laughs) you know and i thought gosh this is not uh you know um so it's it's now that's an extreme case of course most episcopalians uh you know practicing people in that tradition would 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 completely affirm that but um, well, most most Anglicans would. I'm actually not totally sure if most Episcopalians yeah, well, would, but I, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the ones I know would, but maybe that's self, yeah, for self-selected sure. in some way. Um, my context in the the, the, the the epistemological thing you're talking about is is so important, and it's it's not just Catholics. I mean, you articulated it on on this in our tradition how this manifests, but in the in the circles I was growing up in, um, evangelical. On the rain, on the spectrum of evangelical to fundamentalist, you know, depending on the on the community and how you would parse that. Um, if when you study the Bible and you realize, you know, this is not 
scientific, you know, Genesis one is not scientific textbook. Um, the histories recorded in first and second Samuel and first and second Kings use the conventions of chroniclers at the, at that time. It's the, the, the inspiration is about, um, faith and morality, not about, uh, you know, chronology and science and all this kind of thing. And it causes a, a crisis and you think, well, you know, and I remember being kind of, most people were very sensitive to this, but I remember being kind of bullied by one, um, uh, older man in the church who said, well, if you don't believe in Genesis one, then you can't believe in John three sixteen. you know, you need to choose if you accept wow. evolution, then, you know, you, you can't, you have no reason to believe in Jesus because you can't believe in original sin and you can't believe in the authority of scripture and da, 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 da. And you know, in this, for an, an overactive 14 year old mind, this was a, a crisis. Um, yeah. so I can, I can completely relate to people who, um, who want to find in Catholicism, um, uh, a, a bedrock that is both, you know, intellectually coherent and, and in a sense, you know, completely trustworthy and unchangeable. Um, so I, I truly sympathize with that. Uh, the, the problem is when whatever paradigm someone comes in with, so I'm sort of, I'm sort of fleeing a too literalistic fundamentalist reading of scripture. If you then impose that on the pages of Denzinger, the history of doctrine, you're not actually understanding the Catholic tradition correctly. Something you said, I think, when we were off air that I thought was really beautiful, the the image that uh, Bishop Barron gave about the, the, the sun. You know, if a two-year-old asks yeah. you about the sun, you know, you say, uh, why does the sun rise? And say, well, God wants us to be warm during the day or wants us to see, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and so you can give explanations of the history of Catholic teaching and doctrine that aren't wrong, but they're not right. the full— but now everyone has all this on the tips of their fingers. They have, you know, when the Pope says something, it's immediately tweeted out by Et Pontifex and millions of journalists. You can Google the history of doctrine. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen young Catholics on Twitter or Facebook uh, Googling things and coming up with, you know, Boniface the Eighth and all this stuff and saying, we yeah. used to say this and now we say this. And right. in order to do that responsibly, you have to have... Um, Lots of theological uh, training. You have to have uh, historical context, and and the, the Catholic faith is not um, the vast majority of people are not should not be expected to parse through two thousand years of history in multiple contexts in multiple languages and understand all kinds of different theological systems to make sense of this. I mean, the the what I always come back to with this is, do do you as a believing Catholic hypothetical person? have the tools that you need to grow in your relationship with Christ, to grow in with within your local community, um, to have a deeper prayer life. And if the answer to all those things is yes, then, you know, keep carrying on. I mean, you, I, I don't think young people should be worried about, um, you know, does John Paul II's statements on non-Christian religions contradict the Council of Florence? I mean, I just don't think that's the most pressing thing uh, yeah, you know, fa facing, yeah. their, <laughs> facing yeah. their faith life. I think it's more like, how can I grow in my love for my wife or my girlfriend, or how can I be yeah. a better son or employee or whatever, whatever, yeah. how can I love the poor more? And rather than parsing, it's important to debate, you know, uh, if people want to debate the death penalty thing, that's fine. I, you know, but more important is, you know, what is, what is Jesus calls us to love those who are imprisoned? I mean, are we doing that? I'm not doing that as much as I should. I've, I've spilled a lot more ink on, on, you know, Pope Francis and the death penalty than visiting, uh, visiting prisoners in, in Louisiana. Yeah. But, you know, who has done it is my wife. You know, so my, <laughs> my wife I always see as this model Catholic because she's not even aware of most of these debates. She's a highly educated woman, but not in, not in theology and history. Yeah. And she's the one that's actually visiting the prisoners, not me. So, so I see it as a kind of, a kind of rebuke at times of, you know, when, when we stand before God, he's not going to say, well, great job, Sean, you, you won that Facebook argument. You, you really showed that 17-year-old uh, with the Pepe the Frog emoji. You know, <laughs> that's all that yeah. stuff's going to get me more yeah. purgatory time, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my wife is one who I think in many ways has lived by, you know, the prescriptions of, of Matthew 25. So she's more Catholic than me in that sense. Yeah. Uh, man, that, that, that resonates with me, Sean, because my wife is very similar, super smart, super educated, uh, and much holier than I, because I, I sort of dive into all these intricacies very frequently. And like, I mean, I, I enjoy talking about them and everything, but I often sort of get too wrapped up in them. Yeah. 
and forget about the simple task of holiness to which I'm called. And you know, my wife is there just, you know, praying the daily office and doing the rosary and practicing corporate works of mercy all the time. Um, so I, I'm right, I'm right there with you. Um, it sounds like the, the too long didn't read of that answer that you gave is we need to spend less time on Twitter <laughs> and more time, more time praying and more time reading. Yes. And I don't uh, like mean more time, more to, time practicing the faith. Of course, I don't mean, you know, what you're doing on this channel is a ministry and that's wonderful. And we need people doing it. Um, there, there's nothing wrong with talking about these issues and thinking about them and writing about them, but they need it, debates about the death penalty need to take a back seat to, yeah, totally. uh, you know, to holiness. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and to, you know, ultimately, even if we disagree about this, this, you know, in principle, hypothetically, could the death penalty be implemented? Everyone needs yeah. to be on board with, um, you know, life from womb to tomb. Uh, yeah. and, and taking action in these areas. And, and I think to go back to one of your previous questions, we can, all Catholics, wherever we fall on the spectrum, whether we're reading James Martin or Athanasius Schneider, if we can all get on board on what that action is, I think that slowly, we'll, if we're all growing closer to Christ, kind of like ecumenism, if we're all growing closer to Christ, some of these debates will ultimately melt away. And that, yeah. that, will, that will be a, a very good thing for everyone's salvation i think <laughs> yeah well that's a good note good optimistic note to uh to wrap up with sean before we go though we didn't even get to talk about the synod of pistoia uh and your your book but i want you i want to give you a chance to just plug that yeah, briefly sure. yeah uh and talk just give me like a i don't know 30 second overview yeah. of what the synod of pistoia is and what implications it has for sure. vatican ii and your book i will once again uh, mention it here is called the synod of pistoia and vatican ii i assume this was your doctoral dissertation yeah so uh -huh. correct me if i'm yeah. wrong that's right. Um, yep. uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. So give us the give us the sort of 60 minute the, plug for the, that, including the 30 the, minute. What is the Synod of Pistoia? Yeah, 30. Oh, sorry, seconds, not 30 minutes. 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, it's very complicated uh, historically, but I'll say the relevance that it has is a very concrete case. The relevance for people that are interested in theology, uh, it's a very concrete case of a. Um, uh, an event in church history which was condemned by the papacy and contained all, this was a diocesan synod in Italy in 1786, just outside of Florence. It contained all kinds of ideas that Catholics would reject today, by and large, and it contained many ideas that we would accept, by and large. So it's a really interesting test case of um, a failed reform. So asking why did this fail? What mistakes did they make, either in their doctrine or in their, their practice? And then also, how does uh, suppress? How does suppressed ideas make their way kind of back into the bloodstream of the faith? Um, slowly, carefully, ideas about liturgical reform and the role of the laity and all kinds of stuff, which in many ways come to fruition at Vatican II. What is the healthy way of dealing with rejection by the institutional church? So honestly, some traditionalists might find comfort that ideas that are rather harshly put down can actually, when they're remolded and carefully ironed out, can then get kind of reabsorbed. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I had not heard of this in Epistoia until I um, I saw an excerpt from your book. And I was like, oh, wow, how have I not heard about this before? You know, how are not more people well, talking about it? Pretty much the only people that talk about it are me, some Italian historians, and Archbishop Vigano. So that's that's, that's, pre yeah. that's pretty much <laughs> that's, that's a pretty small list. Right. I'm honestly surprised, though, given what you've, given what you've uh, outlined about it, I'm surprised that not more progressives have grabbed onto that. Mm -hmm. as an example of the sort of what we would call, what I might call the hermetic of rupture, right. you know, oh, yeah. sort of yeah, embracing yeah, yeah. their like revolutionary view. And you you obviously have a much more nuanced and I think helpful perspective on that. But I'm surprised that it hasn't entered more of the sort of discourse you'll see, that way. You'll see little uh, asides. It'll get mentioned okay. at times. But I think the main reason was Jansenist became a synonym for like really mean person who's obsessed with hell and doesn't want yeah. people to have fun, yeah. like kind of how the word Puritan is used as a slur yeah. in Protestant circles. So because yeah. of that, progressives didn't want their reform identified with this morose, you know, fire and brimstone group, even though I think that's a misreading of certainly where Jansenism developed to. We can talk yeah. about that some other time if, if you want. I mean, it is, it is a fascinating, um, the development of the kind of, Jesuit and Jansenists are locked in in ideological combat in the 18th century, mm -hmm. and and the results of that I think have had a huge effect on on Catholic uh, doctrine 
and practice. And I suspect I suspect that sort of understanding the history there has pretty big ecumenical implications. I as think well so. Yeah. For for our reformed brethren. So yeah, we should um, yeah. let's schedule another conversation yeah. and talk about that. Yeah, so, that'd be great, Zach. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Where can my listeners follow more of your work, Sean? Um, so I have a I have a Twitter handle. I finally broke down and got it. My wife nice. told me that I would be in purgatory for the rest of time if I got it. <laughs> but probably it's, true. Uh, probably it's true. at Sean L. Blanchard. Um, and I have an academia.edu page. If you Google me, you'll find that, which has links to um, everything that I have that's just available on the internet. I have a number of articles in the Church Life Journal, Notre Dame's Church Life Journal. And if you want to read the 2,000 or 3,000 word thing on Jansenism instead of the 100,000 word thing, you can you can do it on the Church Life Journal website. So, which I Sounds presume 99.9% right. .9 of people would prefer the uh, the two to 3,000 word uh, probably account, true. Probably true. <laughs> which is, I'll, I'll that's how these academic monographs go. Yeah, that's true. Well, thanks so much, Sean. Uh, and to my listeners, I'm going to try to put all those show notes, uh, all those links in the show notes below. Thanks so much for joining another Thank episode. Thank you, Zach. Of, it was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And if my listeners want, want some questions from Sean answered, I'd be happy to, uh, to forward those along to him. So just send me a note, Zach, at credalpodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you. Thank you.